Welcome to episode 23 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. My name is Stephanie Von Latke, and I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Steve Sademan. Despite our episode this week being called Crisis Immersion, we do have some good news to share with you this week. We also have two wonderful guests, Ashley Mathias, who is a PhD candidate at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's also a fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. Then we have Aisha Ahmad, one of the rare academics I know who is also a fierce boxer. She's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto and chair of Women in International Security Canada. Listen until the end for Steve's reading and viewing recommendations. Stephanie, congratulations. You are now the director or co-director of Yet Another Network. Can you tell us a little bit about your new adventure? I'd be happy to. I was really pleased to celebrate yesterday evening with my family in an appropriately socially distant way. So we didn't (laughs) invite anyone over for the celebration, but it was nice to to share the news. So yes, we'll be launching the Réseau d'Analyse Stratégique, or a network for strategic analysis in English. It's a new network that's funded by the D&D Minds program, which I will be co-directing with UCAM Professor Justin Massy. With this network, we set out to recruit security and defense experts who self-identify as bilingual. And what this means is that they have to be comfortable writing in French and also giving media interviews in French. We think there's a bridge to be built between Francophone and Anglophone research communities, especially in the security and defense field. So, for example, much of the research published in French never really makes it through uh, to our Anglophone colleagues and universities outside of Quebec. So we think mm-hmm. there's a bit of a one-way language barrier. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, I'm thinking like Glendon College and the University of Ottawa. And of course, there are a lot of Francophone colleagues who are working in universities in the rest of Canada. I'm one of them. I work at Queen's. But by and large, I think more could be done to promote knowledge exchanges. That's true in Canada, but I think that's also true when it comes to research that is published in Francophone countries. So this is expertise we felt was not properly leveraged. And so we built this network around this notion. So we have uh, colleagues from both Canada and from international institutions. I'm talking a lot about the, the Francophone identity of the network, but I want to say just a little bit more, if you'll let me, on its research focus. The network will focus on international security cooperation through the prism of Canada's relationship with great powers, with international organizations, and with partners all over the world, primarily through its capacity building activities. Mm -hmm. So I hope, Steve, that we can make a little bit of room on this podcast to feature research from these experts and some content in French. We've done so in the past. So when I Mm -hmm. interview guests who are from Francophones, I feel like it's weird if we don't at least have one question in French. So we've done that in the past, but 
I think this is a good way to to have more of these exchanges. My only disappointment right now is that this is a bit of a challenging environment for launching a network. Just rely on face-to-face interactions, as you know, and, and we'd set out to host many events during our first year, but we'll have to rethink some of those activities. So we'll be working with our team to figure out how we can best do that in the near future. But this is something you have been grappling with through your work leading the Canadian Defence and Security Network. So I'm sure you will have valuable advice for me, right? <laughs> I, I hope so. I, I'm really glad that uh, RAS and SA got funded. I think it's a, a valuable, will be a valuable partner and is, is definitely needed to b- build these bridges. I've tried to include, you know, a large number of uh, francophones in, in the CDSN, but there's more to be done. And I'm looking forward to your guys doing stuff. And I'm glad that you guys got funded. I, the, in terms of lessons, well, we had our first experiment yesterday. Uh, yesterday, the CDSN had a COVID response conference. The idea of this was that we live in, in, in a cri- we're living through a crisis and it's all hands on deck. And so the idea was to bring together the people in Canada who think about defense and security and figure out what we can offer to the government. What suggestions can we give to D&D and CAF to adjust to this crisis and figure out the way ahead? And so we organized uh, a Zoom yesterday. We invited not just the CDSN, but the uh, three existing uh, networks, the SPNet from Concordia, the North Atlantic and Arctic Defense and Security something, 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 which is Whitney ba- Lackenbauer and Andrea Sharon and the Defense and Security Foresight Group that, that Rebesma Momani runs. And so we ended up having more than 50 scholars show up. Uh, we formed five groups based on the CDSN themes of procurement personnel, civil military relations, security, and operations. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I asked the folks at Mines, the mobilizing insights from national defense and security, I think is what it's called. And they gave us a list of questions. And so we took their questions, used most of them, revised a couple and added some of our own. And so we discussed those for about two hours, first in small groups, then in the larger group. And so we'll put out later this week or maybe next week, depending on how how we can get everything together, a short briefing memo, which will which will basically be our responses to these questions. What do we think the answer should be? What what Canada should be doing? What are the problems being faced? What are the unanticipated things? Uh, one of the things that I think we'll get out of this is actually some ideas of the questions that D&D is not asking that, that should be they should be asking. And, uh, and you led the personnel group, so how'd that go? It went really well. Uh, it was a, a small group, but we tackled two primary questions. One was how does Oplaser impact preparedness and readiness? And the other one was how is Oplaser laser impacting the willingness to deploy of both the reg force and reserves and talking about how this crisis is affecting the reg force versus the reservists differently i think was one of the main takeaways from me uh, reservists have civilian day jobs which puts them in a more precarious position financially speaking what's clear is that both the regular force and reservists are facing deployment conditions that are very different from what they are used to so i think it's fair to say that it's always difficult to live through these prolonged absences from your family, but right now families do not have access to childcare or any of the resources that they may typically rely on. So it's how do you make it easier on on military personnel as uh, they look for more and more more calls uh, of assistance. And and that's what we've been seeing, of course, in the course of the last few weeks through Oplaser, more requests for assistance, uh, primarily in, in Quebec and Ontario, but elsewhere as well. So I was focused on 
the military personnel discussion, but you got to see, well, I also got to see the presentations from all subgroups that I was really immersed in that one discussion sure. while you guys spent most of your time in the civ mill, but uh, had more of a bird's eye view of, of the main takeaways. Now that you've had 24 hours to think about <laughs> it, are, are there a few points that stayed with you that seemed particularly salient or relevant in the context of the current crisis management? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, there are, there are a few from the civ mill discussion. It was I think important that the suggestion was that the Canadian for Armed Forces develop a principles of involvement that they're being asked to do lots of things across the country and that they need to figure out sort of how do they tell the public what they can and cannot do. What are their rules? Essentially, what are, the, what are the rules of engagement? You know, when when Canada in, 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 intervenes in other countries, think, let's say Afghanistan, the rules of engagement are classified because the enemy ought not know exactly the specifics of what the forces will and will not do under certain circumstances. Well, when they're operating in Canada, they, they really need to be transparent about what they can and cannot do and what they are best at. And I think one of the problems is that we always look to the Canadian forces because they're a ready supply of large numbers of people to do things, but they do some things very well and they do them some things less well. So we can't expect them to be a, a surge of a lot of medical capacity because the Canadian forces don't have the same kind of uh, medical capacity, let's say, than the U.S. military does in terms of a number of, of doctors who are freely available to deploy to something. We can't expect them to prop up industry or to fix the supply chain problems. So we need to have some humility about what they can and cannot do. And the forces also need to figure out what they can and cannot do legally. It may be that their judge, advocate generals, their, their legal advisors are very good for telling them how to bomb or not bomb places. What, you know, what are the restrictions on civilian casualties that they must consider? I'm not sure that they have the same kind of specialty uh, legal advice about how to deal with moving people around who don't want to be moved because of, you know, an epidemic. So I think, I think that was a really important. I think one of the groups highlighted gender dynamics are not what we're really thinking about, which is one of the most visible ways in which the CAF is deploying right now is sending people into long-term health healthcare facilities. That this is really one of the key hotspots in the country is that mo many of the deaths are in these facilities that are taking care of, of the elderly and, and they need help. And it may be that the CAF can provide some help, but you're replacing mostly female staff with young men and they may be well-trained, but they may, may not be well-trained for geriatric care and it may lead to different kinds of, of situations. Not that we really know what's going on, but it's something that they have to anticipate and think about that you're not just plugging in, you know, okay, for this healthcare worker, we're plugging in somebody from the military who has that a similar training and they're going to be exactly identical? Probably not. I think one of the larger things that people were discussing is what does it say about the larger Canadian defense and security priorities? Uh, because Canada is having more casualties from this than anything else that they've experienced in a, quite a long time. And all the tanks, all the ships, all the planes that we've been buying, most of those are not particularly useful in Canada this month. So how are we going to manage that? It also speaks to the larger operational tempo of the military because there was already a discussion, uh, General Air was discussing this before the pandemic, that the military is already being stretched by the increase in disaster relief and firefighting operations that are a result of climate change. Uh, now you're adding this on top of that. So do we need to start thinking about realigning the force to be better able to, to handle these things? And does that mean we do less deployments abroad? One last thing is about the process itself is that when we look back at who committed to showing up or who registered to show up and who didn't show up for our event yesterday, we found out that 6% of the men who signed up 
didn't didn't attend the conference and 25% of the women didn't attend. And that speaks to a larger dynamic that, that academics have been realizing is that this entire pandemic is gendered in the sense that women are the primary caregivers, not only for their children, but for their elders. And so the, the fact that we no longer have daycare or school, which is something that you're definitely feeling much more than I am since mm. my daughter's 24, this is making it harder for women to keep up professionally in our world, and that, and it's probably true in other segments of the economy as well and, and in society. And so one thing I need to think about for the next event like this is how do we make it, design it so that way we have more women who are interested participate. The good news is overall our numbers were quite good. We had a pretty good gender balance and everything, although the personnel theme, which you had, which was entirely women, and the procurement mm-hmm. theme was entirely male, but as a whole, the event itself was well, a good mix, good diversity of people from across the country. But the question is for the for the future is how do we try to make it easier for people to participate, given that they don't have childcare right now, they don't have kids in school, they don't have the usual hours to manage. So that's something that, that we'll talk to you about as you start to set up your virtual online events for the RSA. Yeah, and there are so many networks right now who are, are struggling with similar issues. I'm thinking, you know, three were funded last year. There's the CDSN. There's three new ones we're going to kick off this year. You know, it's it's a little bit interesting to think that at a moment when these networks are proliferating, there is this huge constraint on our ability to do what networks are supposed to do. But I felt like the Zoom meeting worked rather well yesterday. The only challenging thing is with a network that is as large as yours is to find that window of two hours or more Mm -hmm. for all these people to free their time when it's very difficult to separate their work time from the time that they need to spend with their family, uh, given the current constraints. So that will be an ongoing challenge. But there have been some recent announcements about childcare facilities and, and some schools reopening. So I think that we'll see some easing of the social distancing rules in, in the near future. And it won't be a return to normalcy. I don't think we can expect that for a long time, but at least we'll have a bit more flexibility. Yeah, and I think that that's the key is to be flexible about this. I mean, the CDSN for the first, you know, several months was only operating virtually given that it, you know, we had the podcast, but we didn't have any events until until the fall, really, with the workshops. And maybe we can, our workshops, which are smaller, we can have be online in, in the fall rather than just waiting until we can finally travel. There's so much uncertainty that one of the things I learned a long time ago from actually a work of fiction, which I'll highlight later, uh, is uh, uncertainty hampers action action. And so uh, all this uncertainty is causing us to, to not do things. And so I, I felt really good about our first effort to try to do do something. And the uh, efforts in the next couple of weeks will be try to, to figure out what we learned and to disseminate that. What else is the CAF? We talked about healthcare facilities. What else is the CAF doing these days in response to this crisis? Well, they're contributing to, to logistics. So we, we talked about uh, elder care, but uh, there are medical facilities that are being set up as well from from scratch and some some of those facilities are, are being set up in remote parts of the country so the Canadian Armed Forces and, and the military in general is pretty good at planning and executing and, and logistics and so those capabilities are, are really handy right now as uh, help is being delivered all over the country and these mm-hmm. installations need to to be set up quite quickly. So I think there, there are certain tasks that are very appropriate for the military to do. And, and I think that is one of those examples, a quick setup of emergency military installations, and then mm-hmm. some other tasks, maybe not so much. And, and to me, the elder care strikes me as one where, you know, I do have uh, strong reservations about 
asking the military to, to step in, in in those contexts. And of course, hopefully that will generate deeper discussions about you know the quality of elder care in this country. And, and this certainly was part of our discussions in the military personnel group. Yeah, I think we'll see uh, in the days ahead, the weeks ahead, more publicity about what's going on. Uh, I think they're, they're going to have to turn to flood relief, as apparently there's now going to be flooding in near Edmonton. Uh, so this is the season for that kind of thing. Good news is I don't think Ottawa is going to flood like it did last year, but that will put more demands upon the CAF. I think one thing that we should not put demands on the CAF is putting, making them responsible for pandemic intelligence. This is one of the stories that have blown up in the past couple of weeks, the asking questions about why the this unit within the CAF which covers health for the calf, you know, issued an alert, but why wasn't that blown up to be a major deal? And in the conversations in town, including the conversations yesterday, it's very clear that this unit is responsible for making for force protection, making sure that the units we send abroad are healthy, that they're not exposed to things. So it's more about the pandemic risk facing our troops in Ukraine or Latvia mm-hmm. or Iraq, rather than trying to warn the Canadian public about this. So I, what I would do is I'd point people to paper that we'll have linked on our page that uh, Jessica uh, Jessica Davis and Stephanie Carvin. Stephanie Carvin is one of my colleagues at, at NIPSIA and, and Jessica Davis is a consultant as well as a PhD student at, at NIPSIA. And they put together a paper that examines briefly the challenges of the intelligence situation. And so they, they have a short paper that I think really clarifies this and basically says, uh, let's not ask too much of the calf. Let's, let's not direct them in ways that's not really in their but in their basket. This is something that the public health folks have to be focused on much more so than the military in terms of warning the public. I do think that one of the things that we'll be doing over the next several months, we've already started it, but over the next several months is trying to figure out what went right, what went wrong in our response. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be something that every segment of government and every segment of society is going to have to figure out because this is this is not just a military thing. It's a, a whole of society thing. And some, some uh, provinces reacted more quickly, did more things. Others acted more slowly. Federal government did some things well, did some things poorly. I think it'll be easy to look backwards and say what we should have done, but it's really hard to close down an economy and, and, and shut down everything. So it's uh, it's understandable and unfortunate that we now know that if we'd done everything just a week or two earlier, we could have saved lives. But those choices are hard to make. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do think that pandemic research is something that's going to get a, a lot of effort in the future. Yeah, yeah, it will. And while we're talking about about what to include in the show notes, I would also suggest that we share the two papers that we used for the, the, the COVID response conference yesterday, the one by Anissa Kimball on the impossibility of prediction and, and the Vimy paper. And one thing that struck me about the Vimy paper is that there is this huge temptation to ask the military to step in for everything because it plays well. Uh, most Canadians do approve of this increased role of the Canadian forces during this pandemic, nine out of 10 Canadians. Uh, so there is uh, not only the sense of, of trust in the military, but I suppose it's also attractive if you're a politician to have the military step in in this way, knowing that that it does uh, play well. So I, I think we, we need to think about this very cautiously, mm-hmm. but I think that the Vimy paper does a good job at highlighting some of the key issues from the, the, the trend line that you mentioned earlier about, yes, there's mm-hmm. more and more demand for the Canadian Armed Forces to step in for these types of domestic operations to you know certain civil issues. Yeah, and there's going to be a temptation by the military to play a role because they understand that there might be budget cuts down the road after this crisis and the best way to avoid budget cuts then is to appear relevant now. That was one of the themes of the conversations of the past couple uh, during our, our conference yesterday is that there's both an opportunity and a temptation to 
do more and to talk more about what they're doing to try to, to protect themselves. It, the Vimy paper was put out by the CIA Institute, and they're having an event on Friday. So if you're listening to this on Wednesday of this week of... Friday's uh, May 1st. Friday, uh, so on May Day, thank you. So on May Day, on May 1st, uh, there's going to be a CDI event that's open to the public, the webinar that will highlight, the, they'll have a discussion of that paper. There'll be uh, the authors of that paper. There'll be uh, Stephanie Carvin and Jess Davis talking about their paper. I'm going to show up and talk a little bit about what we learned from our event. So it's going to be a free event on Friday. Go to the CDI website, their Twitter account, which is CDA Institute, to find out more about what they're doing because their event is going to, is, is going to present and have a discussion of some of the things we've been talking about, about what the CAF can and cannot do and what it should and shouldn't do, uh, what we can expect. Uh, we did get one question from the audience, from our Twitter followers. For most of history, disease was a major factor in wars, often be more deadly than the battlefield. When did that change and could COVID bring it back? Notably, the, the thing we've been talking about during this pandemic has been the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu was not just something that happened beside World War One, but was deeply implicated in it, or or vice versa, which is that the war helped to spread the disease, and then it also helped to end the war because it was causing the Germans as well as everybody else to suffer greatly from the war. So it created, helped to cause political instability in Germany and elsewhere. So it helped to affect the outcome of and the timing of the end of the war. But the war itself also helped to spread the disease. So I guess what we're thinking about now is is what role does disease play in modern warfare? Uh, I think the answer to this question is that, well, we've had much discussion of biological warfare over the past 20, 20 years or so, particularly since 9-11. But even before that, that that was something that, that the United States and the Soviet Union both explored during the Cold War. So disease has never gone away. And we have healthcare effects from our wars as well that, you know, the refugees that are in Syria, the refugees that have been escaping from other places, you know, one of the things they're escaping is is disease, that the destruction of infrastructure uh, helps to cause disease to spread. So that always helps to create more casualties. So I don't think it's ever gone away. I don't think we've, we're seeing, uh, you know, the deliberate catapulting of diseased bodies into fortresses like we, you know, into castles like the way they used to do a long time ago, but we've got modern technology for that. I think one of the topics we talked about during the conference yesterday was how is the COVID going to change the balance of power in the world? And I think that speaks to broader trends like, is China going to take advantage of this? Is this American failure to respond to this going to reduce American power in the world? Is it going to change alliance patterns? I think those are really big questions that we don't have time for today to today to discuss. But I do think that's something we, we, we will explore and maybe come back to and talk to some experts on on these things in the future. We didn't manage to talk to a, a healthcare expert for this week. We're going to do that for in two weeks. Uh, on this week's podcast, we're highlighting Ashley Mathias. Uh, she talks about the use of online platforms to promote uh, main, and mainstream extremist ideologies. We don't know what happened in Nova Scotia yet, but her discussion of extremism might feed into that because misogyny is, is something that she talks about. And that's been one of the ways in which the internet has been exacerbating extremism. So she talks a bit about that. So this week, we're also talking to Aisha Ahmad, who's the chair of the board of Women in International Security Canada. She's also one of my former students and has become 
sort of a disaster counselor as she's written a, a series of columns on how to deal with living through a disaster. And then we'll conclude with my R&R, what are the things that people can distract themselves with as they spend their time at home during this pandemic. I hope you, Stephanie, are finding ways to distract yourself besides celebrating your, your new accomplishments. Yes, I have uh, lots of work stacked up <laughs> <laughs> and uh, trying to chip away at that, but also trying to, to find some happy in the day-to-day with the kids running around getting scrapes on my knees and trying to enjoy the the weather that's warming up so you got to find the balance in those days and and also celebrate the the happy moments and I had a big happy moment yesterday yes I'll I'll admit that that's great (laughs) and Uh... we'll postpone our discussion on the WHO I suppose we were planning on having a discussion on that organization but it's proven a bit harder to secure someone to interview i understand that if you have expertise on the who right now you're in high high demand so uh, we'll just have to push that back but i think it's still worth noting that on april 15th trump announced that the u.s would be suspending its funding to the who and i really think that this deserves almost an entire episode he cited a long list of grievances and and this has attracted greater scrutiny over the who those activities. And I can certainly understand sort of the impulse that Trump might have to to scapegoat the WHO in this way, especially uh, given the many blunders that have happened in the United States when it comes to the management of the pandemic and the unacceptable delays in testing and so on. But it'd be good to have a discussion about it, about the WHO's performance, which will be reviewed. And as it should, it's always important to capture some lessons learned from these major events. But I think that there's something to be said right now for the tone that is used by the Trump administration when talking about the WHO. WHO and also the timing of withdrawing funding. I think both of those things, I think, you know, take us in a, in a bit of a dangerous direction. Yes, uh, we'll have plenty to talk about on that material next time. I am interviewing somebody on Friday, so we'll have that material for the next podcast. We just couldn't get it lined up for this podcast. That's right. And so what will you be doing in the next couple of weeks in this uh, pandemic environment, aside from participating to another virtual event on Friday? More pizza? I, I have found flour, so I'll do more baking. I'm going to make chocolate chip cookies this weekend. And I'm going to try to make some progress past. I finally finished grading, so I'll, I'll try to make progress on some of my research projects and uh, just watch a lot of TV. Fair enough, fair enough. And Zoom with my family. We had a, you know, we had maximum statement Zoom the other night. So uh, we'll see how we keep on doing that. Be healthy. Thank uh, you. Good luck with the kids. And we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Sounds good. Stay safe. My name is Ashley Mathias. I am a PhD candidate in the Department of Communication at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. My focus is on gender discourses that lead to marginalization and violence, predominantly in online media. Ashley, I'm delighted that you're on Battle Rhythm. Thank you so much for making yourself available today. Ashley, you were a presenter at the Year Ahead Conference, and we've been featuring many of the conference guests on Battle Rhythm. And you gave a presentation on extremism 
shamanism. Now that was back in December, but that ties into some of your broader work on extremist groups and their narratives. Yes, um, I started looking into extremism and extreme discourses with my master's degree, um, where I studied gendered hate online in the manosphere, particularly with men's rights activists and the groups that would grow into the community we now call incels. And as I was studying that, we started to see the popular rise of the alt-right in mainstream culture. So I kind of kept an eye on that as I pivoted toward different things for my dissertation. And as academic interests are wont to do, it all circled kind of back around. And I have kept that second strand of research and moved into kind of more research on gender discourses in the alt-right and in white nationalist and white supremacist extremism in the U.S. For those of us who weren't there, can I ask you some of the key takeaways from your talk? Or perhaps you can go into the discursive strategies that various extremist groups Absolutely. The kind of governing frame or what I was thinking about when I was working on the piece for the conference, you know, was what is what is an upcoming issue? And I had recently been doing some conferences with government entities, and I really see the issue of trying to understand group cohesion with the digital world and the non-digital world or the digital divide as it's referred to as being a primary issue in our ability to approach research and tackle practically the issue of extremism broadly. In the talk, I looked at why there's barriers to understanding online space and offline space as coextensive when research has shown for more than a decade that people experience them as coextensive spaces of living. We don't make those same distinctions that law and policy make and how we can think about what groups look like. And for me, that is tied to discursive strategies that people use to build groups and network online. And so using communications theory, parts of our research talks about what are called public. So we might think about those very broadly as groups of people that come together, sometimes for political reasons, but it doesn't have to be, around different kinds of issues in the public sphere. Extremists form public, but they tend to be online. And so publics are a way to get around the idea that groups have to be in-person, in-place, associational frameworks. It was really a way to think about how groups can be technologically mediated and async or not talking in the same timeline, right? So one person can post something and people can pick it up at a similar time or later or somewhere else in the world and interact and it's still part of a group and a network. Mm -hmm. So it was me thinking through the kind of social processes of online technologically mediated communication. And in the paper, I just, I give examples of how gender acts as a framework through which people connect and have affective attachments to these groups through discourses about the loss of, of white masculinity or how feminism has run, run amok and is destroying society, things like that. And in the article, what I really like is that you outline some of the incentives for extremist groups to go either online or offline, depending on their goals. I was wondering if you can illustrate that point by providing certain types of examples. Uh, so for, for instance, in the article, I recall that you mentioned uh, the online medium is really good for normalizing certain types of discourses, uh, and that wouldn't happen offline just as well. That is certainly um, what we're seeing to happen. It's much easier online to make statements that if you had to say them in person, um, or if you did say them in person publicly, might be more discounted, partly because of the culture of the internet itself. And that culture is, is very specific to kind of 
in the Western sphere, anti-establishment, kind of running counter to mainstream ideas in many ways. If we think about things like gamer cultures, manosphere types of cultures where these groups have found purchase. So to go out for the lulls or to go out to, you know, own the other side by saying something really outlandish is a way that some of these ideas can be very easily lobbed into kind of more normative culture and become part of the normal discourse. And that's done through both text, but also things like memes and videos, mm-hmm. videos count as memes on occasion Mm -hmm. in terms of propaganda. One of the things I did in my presentation was actually show how people essentially manipulate propaganda through what I have used the term bricolage, which comes from originally religious studies and sociology, where people grab pieces of cultural material and bring them together to create something. So in the case of the presentation, I showed a video where people had spliced together cuts of the Christchurch shooters live stream with common cultural norms. So the first one was the intro to friends. It's a very disturbing video, but it had about eight different versions. Some of them first-person shooter, gaming consoles, different things. So those are ways that you can sort of mainstream really extreme things and make them more normalized. And so ultimately the policy prescription of your work would be to think of the online world and offline world when it comes to uh, extremist strategies as more integrated, correct? Yes. The extremist cultures, they're certainly right-wing and white nationalists extremists have been early adopters of technology and they've been using the internet for many years and so they've integrated them and because we are certainly in policy and law constrained and for very good reasons it's a very tricky Mm -hmm. question that I'm not necessarily addressing that has to be separated in some ways in practical terms for policy and law people However, for practitioners, particularly prevention, uh, CBE practitioners, Mm -hmm. a different understanding of what the tools are and mechanisms of group formation may offer new ways to think about or do their work in terms of relating to potentially people that could be radicalized or people that are already radicalized. I want to turn over now to the work that you do that looks at the intersection of gender and right-wing groups. You've alluded to some of that research already, especially when it comes to white nationalist groups. But what should we know about these groups that sets them apart from other extremists? Or are there more similarities than we might think? So I actually follow... J.M. Berger's arguments in terms of how I think about what is similar and what is different. And in my work, I've tried to find what are the sort of structural similarities between extremist groups while paying attention to the localized differences. So, for example, I would argue and have argued in some of my work that gender is a structural kind of discourse within and across extremisms, whether it's white nationalists, Manosphere, even in a co-authored piece I did with a uh, specialist in Salafi jihadism, even some jihadist groups. However, there are localized differences. So for white supremacists and white nationalist extremists who need women and want women to be involved in the movement for multiple reasons. One, they soften movement. Two, we need a future for the white race, different things like that. The way gender is handled and the way it is expressed shares some features with other groups, but it's important that women are engaged. So they have to manage those discourses in a particular way versus something like manosphere and incels. Incels do not need women in their groups. That's not what they're looking for. And so their discourses are much more negative and pushing away at women in certain ways in comparison. Although they do share hallmark features of being anti-feminist, being anti-establishment culture, because they see feminism and, and certain other kind of contemporary ideas about gender equality as posing their problems, as, as a foundational layer of their problems. In the incel world, that would be 
because of gender equality, women don't choose us as sexual partners, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas for white nationalists, it is because of gender equality, we should say white women don't understand that this is their white children. And so in that project, you were also working with a colleague to look at jihadist narratives as it pertains to women as well? I was. So my first uh, publication was on identitarian women's discourses they used to navigate between being active members of the group, but also being female and being submissive toward m- men in the group. And how did they pose their role? And then I, a colleague who works on Salafi jihadism, Charlie Winner at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization in King's College London, read it and said, that sounds very familiar to mm-hmm. this manifesto I translated, the Kansa man- manifesto. And we actually did a comparative analysis at the structural level to see how the women who wrote the Kansa manifesto narrated their role. And there are structural similarities. We are hoping to get to a place where we can actually go through and outline the differences. We've just both been incredibly busy finishing up our dissertations. So we, we hope to get to that. But there are some very strong resonances in how women navigate moving to a traditional gendered female role as liberation for themselves, actually giving them a sense of agency in that way, as opposed to Western feminist ideals. And there are strong references when they talk about being active members of these groups and taking on active roles, narrating that through connections to what I would refer to as women of myth and legend. In the case of white nationalists, it tends to be shield maidens and the goddess Freya. In Salafi jihadism, it tends to be Islamic women of myth and legend. But they use that frame to kind of articulate that there is a figure through which they have access to that kind of active role, but it's not permanent. It's only done when necessary so that they can stay within the purview of really men lead the movement and we support them. And one of the things that was really important that we kind of figured out between the two is that women see their roles as very active, even when the outside world sees them as very passive. So that supporting role, that kind of keeping the house and making a family for white nationalism or for Salafi jihadism is seen as active Mm -hmm. on their part. And that's a thing that that we may not understand when we're looking at prevention and de-radicalization discourse. Ashley, you mentioned the D word, dissertation. So I have to ask you about your dissertation project for two reasons. First of all, because it's got such a cool title, Fierce Mamas, but also because uh, it's not related to security and defense, but it touches on some of the themes that you just mentioned about women's roles. Yes. Well, I thought after my master's, I would pivot to something with, you know, a, a, a little less hate involved in it. And, I, <laughs> and so I pivoted to, to discourses on motherhood and how women express their agency through those discourses, but also how the use of maternalism or motherhood discourses by women politically has certain types of effects, specifically preventing their solidarity solidarity against kind of vectors of identity. So it's kind of an age-old issue in terms of, you know, how do women come together when they are separated um, out among the males, as Simone de Beauvoir said in the 40s. And so I was looking at these discourses and specifically how women use fierce imagery. So here we might think of Sarah Palin's Mama Grizzlies or the Tiger Mother, the most recent one is the Mama Dragons. But there's also non-fierce 
imagery, but rather warriors for their children. So eco moms, anti-vaxxer moms, there's a plethora. And as I was kind of studying this and, and getting really into it, extremism came back around and I, I found a video of identitarian women openly saying they use motherhood as a recruiting tool. I looked at it and said, well, that's the most negative outcome of my argument. And started diving back into it a little bit in terms of extremism and how maternalism works as a discourse for the extreme uh, white nationalists and extreme white supremacist movements, specifically because that was a place that connected to this argument I was making in my dissertation about the negative impacts of the use of maternalism. And Ashley, just to close off our conversation, are you a fierce dog mama? I am a fierce dog mama and, and, a, and a cat mama. I have two dogs and a cat. Well, thank you very much. It's been such a fascinating discussion, and I look forward to following your work in the future, including your, your dissertation. Uh, for those listening and who are interested in Ashley's work, she's got her publications on her website. And Ashley, your website is? aamathias.com. Thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm, Ashley. Thank you for having me. It was a lovely chat, and I really enjoyed it. Today we're talking with Aisha Ahmed, one of my former students and a superstar in the Canadian IR universe. She's been making a name for herself the past couple uh, weeks as one of the go-to disaster counselors because she has some experience with that. So we're talking with her today, first and foremost, because she is the chairperson of the board of Women in International Security Canada, which is a vital partner of the CDSN. The first question, Aisha, is how are you doing? How are you handling this mess? <laughs> I'm uh, I'm probably about the same as everybody else in the world. I have good days and I have bad days, but you know, I take each day in stride and you know, just because we don't have access to all of the things that used to make us happy, it doesn't mean that we can't find happiness in in any given day. And so, you know, one day at a time. So, I guess the big question is, did you move a speed bag and heavy bag into your apartment so that way you can keep on punching things or is this something your fiance has to put up with? You know, uh, it is hard. I as you know, I am an avid boss and I have all these fitness activities that I really enjoy and they are not easy to do in isolation in an apartment in downtown Toronto. So I don't have a heavy bag or a speed bag in my house, although I have found a flight of stairs in which I can do stair drills. Mm -hmm. and uh, and I can also do shadow boxing, which is, you know, thank goodness for technique. It will carry you through in moments like this. But, you know, we're all just, you know, making do with what we've got. And it's everything is makeshift at this point. Well, that, that's a good segue to one of the questions I had for you, which is that usually every spring, Weiss Canada has one of the most amazing conferences, one that gave us a couple of our capstone speakers this past winter, the Weiss Annual Conference. So what are you guys doing instead of having everybody get together? Well, I mean, that's a great question. And in fact, this was such a labor of love. This past year, we pulled together a conference that we had titled Future Security Challenges Facing Canada, Vital uh, Insights from Women in International Security. And we had women from all of these different fields put forward papers that spoke to some, some cutting-edge security issues, including non-traditional security issues such as climate change, digital security. You can assure, be assured that we will focus on pandemics this coming year. But now, Instead of a conference, what are we going to do? What we've decided to do is this was such a competitive year in that we had such outstanding women put forward their research that we didn't want to lose this opportunity of showcasing their work. And so instead of a digital conference, what we've decided to do is put forward our top 20 women as our emerging 
thought leaders in the field of security and particularly in their subfields. And so what we're doing is we're working on creating digital profiles, not just you know their, their papers, but also of their research portfolio as a whole, and then showcasing that online. Uh, we're also working with the Defense and Security Foresight Group and coming up with a working paper series so that those conference papers that we were going to put forward uh, also have the opportunity, if those authors want to put them forward as a working paper, you know, to be showcased in that way, as well as other publications through that outlet. And, you know, and I'm also hoping that once you take a look at the extraordinary talent that we have in Wise Canada for the year, you might be inspired to have some of these battle rhythm podcasts, you know, centered around the exciting women who we've got talking about these issues. You know, we, unlike previous years, we really did do uh, an amazing job of bringing women from across disciplines into the conversation. And I think that would be a real addition for the security field. Well, we definitely have you guys online we need to have the names and we'll start contacting them to be the some of the folks that fill our emerging scholar segment in future episodes so we've already planned on doing this it's just a matter of executing you're going to have all these digital profiles online are you going to have a, an uh, like a, an online event in terms of like a zoom conference or a youtube thing or is it mostly posting these profiles and drawing attention to them via twitter and other other ways to pr- promote stuff No, we're definitely interested in doing a multimedia option. I mean, I think right now at this point, a lot of folks are Zoom conferenced out, but we did have a number of private sector partners who we were in conversations with, and I don't want to preempt those conversations now, but we're absolutely interested in a digital adaptation Mm -hmm. that happen later on in the year. And one of the great things about this, and this is once again, we really have to focus on silver linings and finding new ways to be happy and productive in this this new world that we're living in. You know, it's that it's not really just going to be about one culminating event as it has been in the past. And, you know, as amazing as the Wise Canada annual conference is, it's also, you know, time limited. Whereas what we have the ability to do now is really take the time over the course of the entire year to demonstrate the excellence and scholarship that we have emerging across the country on critical security issues. And I think that that gives us the opportunity to go deeper, to build more meaningful connections. And yes, it will absolutely have multimedia component. We're uh, working out the logistics on that to make sure it looks really nice, but we want to make sure that you can not just read about these women, but see them and also interact with them. Excellent. And and that brings up one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, which is you've now published a couple things, I think both at the Chronicle of Higher Education, the first one being uh, a product of a Twitter thread you had, which is using your experiences in other uh, disasters to tell people a little bit about how, to, how these things play out and to assure them that all of our productivity is not going to be what it once was and we should be okay with that. So can you tell us a little bit about your background as to where you learn these lessons, and then what are the key insights that you want to share with people? Well, I mean, as as you know, uh, I am a professor in the field of international security, and you know, my research has primarily been based on extensive extensive field work in various conflict affected parts of the world. And so there have been times where, you know, there's been gunfire outside my window and other times where there was cholera in the neighborhood. And and those are, you know, chronic sustained challenges that you face in a, in a different world environment in which disaster is systemic. Now, for a lot of folks, this pandemic is their first ever experience of being immersed in a system-wide disaster. It's the first time they've really found themselves awake in a world where they are surrounded by a threat, you know, a deadly threat. And it's the first time that their freedoms and their 
their opportunities have been restricted in ways that violate what they think is normal and and acceptable even. So I can understand that there's a great deal of distress and I could also see that there were some pretty inexperienced reactions to that, you know, from toilet paper to banana bread. I mean, there's there's some pretty strange reactions people are having to this experience. But, you know, a lot of people think that war itself is just, you know, explosions or gunfire because that's what makes the director's cut in the movies. But, you know, a lot of the time in places that have sustained disaster conditions, you know, there's a great deal of isolation, mobility restriction, loneliness, you know, loss of opportunity, loss of emotional connection, crippling boredom, you know, uh, for us, all of the ordinary things that we would normally have to do become frustrating and take three times as long. I mean, those are also very ordinary experiences in a place that is affected by conflict or disaster. And so there is a familiarity in that experience now. And so I, I thought it would be useful for those people who are maybe newcomers to crises to have some perspective on how this works and how they might be feeling and maybe take better care of themselves if they get that perspective. What are the key kinds of things that, that you're recommending? Well, I mean, first and foremost, there is some pretty dramatic and and strange reactions among our colleagues in academia that seem to be very much born out of denial. One was definitely the misperception that this global pandemic is somehow either a sabbatical or a writer's retreat. I mean, <laughs> oh my goodness. Like and and you know you have folks who who embraced that approach and thought, well I, I must now write ten papers because of this. While failing to take into consideration that actually, no, it's not a writer's retreat. It's a global catastrophe that affects human life and uh, can threaten your own family members and loved ones. It will have secondary and tertiary effects on your physical environment, including those things that you will need in terms of your security. And so I decided that the first and foremost thing that people need to understand is that there are some very real security requirements that you need to take care of at the outset, you know, and that means your physical security. You know, if you had asked people a month ago how long it took them to do their groceries, they would have had a very different understanding of what that task entailed. Right now, getting your your basic food needs met is a much more complicated ordeal and you have to be mindful of others and the amount of time that you put into that. Folks weren't paying attention to that. You know, also, When's the last time you took stock of the vulnerable people in your immediate family and close friend network that you need to have on a list? You know, what are the arrangements that you've made for your home, for your physical security, to, you know, for disease prevention, for emotional connection with people that are going to be put in a highly vulnerable situation? None of these things are a writer's retreat. You know, those are the first tasks that need to be completed if you want to have a stable life. And so folks who were either indulging in a writer's retreat because they were in a state of utter delusion, or frankly, people who thought, oh, well, I guess that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And shucks, I don't know why I'm failing and I'm having such a bad time at this and I'm waking up at three o'clock in the morning. All of that comes from the same place of that initial shock of waking up in a disaster zone. And so coming to terms with the fact that yes, you are living in a crisis situation and you have certain responsibilities to mitigate that crisis to the best of your ability in your own life 
first and foremost, is the essential prerequisite. This is this essential prerequisite before you can move into academic productivity. That was just the first message that needed to come out. And, and then after that, we can have conversations about how you can trust that your brain will in fact cooperate once you provided it the opportunity to keep you alive because that's really what it's doing. You know, people are complaining that they feel fuzzy or they feel unproductive. Well, actually your brain is working overtime to figure out how to keep you alive in this new alternate universe that we're living in. Well, that's really terrific. I, I appreciate your perspective on this. And I think the reason why your, your Twitter thread went viral and Chronicle of Higher Education obviously reached out to you and continues to publish your stuff is because you've got some really keen insights here that, that are very valuable for those of us who have not spent time in areas where gunshots are going off, although I did live in Texas for six years, but that was else entirely. <laughs> I think the, the last thing I want to ask you about is just what, what is your current research? I, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with your background, but our audience hasn't read as much of your stuff as I have. So what is your current project and how are you getting it done in these circumstances? You know, it's really interesting. I mean, Back in November, I felt that my, my research was so essential for the world that I was being flown around to advise three-star generals and, you know, for 13 NATO countries and a Pentagon and Kansofcom. And like that was, I felt like my work was super duper important. And right now, I mean, the, some of the jihadist organizations that I study have been like, oh, no, 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 we must, we must be very careful. There's a pandemic. People could die. You know, <laughs> let's be reasonable here. So, I mean, there is something that I'll, I'll just say in, in terms of the urgency of work, the urgency of research that is not related to the COVID pandemic. We need to have some perspective on that. That said, I will say that I continue to move forward with my own research projects and obligations. I have projects that are already in the works. I mean, as you know, for those who aren't familiar with my work, I work on jihadist insurgencies in complex civil wars and my book project, uh, my book that's been out for a couple of years now you know, is on uh, the relationship between jihadist extremists and, you know, illicit business economies, uh, business networks in, um, in conflict zones around the world. And so uh, I have a paper that is currently in the R&R stage, which is about, you know, the, the ways that jihadists are able to lean into the informal economy to stay afloat, even under periods of significant decline. And so that's one project that I'm working on. Uh, I've also got a book chapter that I'm, I'm producing for a handbook on smuggling, which should be a lot of fun. And a handbook on smuggling, is that a to-do list? Is that sort of a, are those books that people write in honor of Han Solo, what is the basic idea? It's not a guide on how to smuggle, but rather a, a handbook on the, you know, how smuggling and, and trafficking networks are in fact a security phenomenon in the world. And so I'm, I'm writing a chapter that sort of explains how smuggling networks work in, in civil war economies, you know, and the role they play. Okay. I guess it won't sell quite as well but it sounds interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it may sell, you know? I mean, smuggling is <laughs> super interesting. I don't know if it's if it's Han Solo material, but, you know, uh, the fact is, I mean, I think books about smuggling and illicit economies are most interesting because they're actually about human survival, which is something that we care a whole lot about right now and about how human beings, you know, adapt to impossible conditions to figure out ways to live. And, and really, that's what this story is about. So let me ask you this then. Can you find a way to tap into the Canadian smuggling network to get me some flour because I've had a really hard time getting flour these days. You know what? It's just a phase in the same way that people went crazy on toilet paper. They're now going crazy on flour. It's going to be something different in a couple of weeks. And I will tell you, I bake banana bread 
on a regular basis in non-pandemic times. And so I understand that the next couple of weeks until people realize that the bread baking is not going to save them, that it's just going to take a little while and then people will realize that this isn't the solution either. Well, for me, making pizza on a weekly basis is part of my survival. I found my workaround for the flour shortages to buy mixes and just make brownies from a mix rather than making my own bread or whatever. Have you tried using naan for your pizza base? No. We have naan bread line around that we can use, but I haven't used it for pizza. I still have, I still have enough flour to get through for okay. another couple of weeks. I'm just looking further down the road. The road, it'll get fixed itself. Yeah, I'm figuring enough. I'll, I'll definitely find a way one of these days. Well, Aisha, I really appreciate the time you took to share with us both the, you know, the Weiss experience, what you guys got coming up there, your new role as da- disaster counselor, and I'm always obviously fascinated by your research. Aisha was my PhD student at McGill University. It's been amazing to watch all that you've done over the years and that you are getting a lot more access to the important decision makers in Canada and elsewhere on, on jihadist issues that uh, that your your path has been truly impressive and so I'm, I'm i'm glad to see that your career not only is successful but it's taking you to new areas such as being sort of the the oprah winfrey of canada of canadian academia oh my god i'm not sure i'm willing to, to embrace this public role just yet i mean d- the disaster counselor oprah winfrey of this pandemic, I feel like, you know, on the one hand, I'm so grossly unqualified to do this. (laughs) I really am. I mean, I'm just sharing from as a person, like many people who have lived through chronic disasters, there's just, you know, there's, there's a a type of wisdom that only calamity can teach you. And I've, I've benefited from, you know, talking to people who, you know, also know it in their bones, you know, come from hardship places. And, you know, there's certain things that, that only that kind of life can teach you, but I am not Oprah Winfrey, you know? (laughs) I'm much more comfortable with my my sort of detached academic hat than I am with this this new role. But it has been a fun project, a fun side project to, you know, have these columns and it's been fun. And, you know, I'm always really happy to talk to you and thank you for all the the guidance and support and tutelage that that I've received from you over the years. Well, my pleasure. I want to thank you again for appearing on Battle Rhythm. I'm sure this will not be the the only time that you appear here, and we'll figure out ways to make sure that Weiss Canada's latest initiative is not only benefit for your your network, but for the larger CDSN. So good luck in hunkering down and trying, you know, find something to punch. All right, thanks so much, Steve. On today's r and I've got a couple of suggestions for you from the past, more than the present. Uh, the first is the movie Where Eagles Dare. When I grew up, I really became a big fan of Alistair McLean novels. He wrote uh, the book that became The Guns of Navarone. Where Eagles Dare is the most faithful effort to turn a, one of his books into a movie, and it stars Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood in a World War II movie uh, where they're trying to rescue people and do other sh- uh, espionage and all kinds of other chicanery. So it's got a good sense of humor about it. It's got some good action for its time. And it's fun to watch Richard Burton uh, school and eat the scenery with a young Clint Eastwood. The TV show, I finally finished season six of Community. I was originally reluctant to watch Community because I hate anything that portrays my job badly. And TVs and movies get professors' jobs so badly. Community does not get professors' jobs well. 
but it's not irritating at all because it's just delightful. Simply fantastic, fun, silly stuff, sometimes addressing issues of importance, but mostly just being wildly entertaining. And I can't think of what we need better now than a deep helping of silliness. The third recommendation is also an old time uh, suggestion, which is Run Silent, Run Deep. That was a book that was turned into a movie badly. Ed Beach was a submariner in World War II for the Americans, and so it gives you a portrayal of what it was like to be in the submarine warfare where the United States was under sea trying to thwart the Japanese in the Pacific. I decided this week to go old school and nostalgic. I'll try to get better in future weeks with a little more current stuff. Have a great week. Be well. Wash your hands. Stay at home. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.